At first, I thought they handed me the wrong dossier. I couldn't believe they wanted this man dead. All right, kids, let's get cracking. Next seminar up, April 12th through the 14th, then June 7th through the 9th, and then August 9th through the 11th. Just added a coach's workshop back on the list. This is going on June 8th in White Plains, New York. This is for personal trainers, group fitness instructors, or folks that just want to get better at coaching the lifts. We go over the strength training principles for starting strength, and there is a discount available for active trainers. Check out the link for details. Self-sufficient lifter camp March 16th in Wichita Falls and May 18th in Omaha, Nebraska. Testify strength and conditioning. Then we have lift, shoot, fight, two-day camp going on May 18th and 19th in Wichita Falls. Well, you'll come, you'll learn all five lifts from Rip and Nick. Then Nick and John Ballantyne will be going over some basic pistol stuff and some combatives. There is no prerequisite in terms of knowledge to join. This is great for people of all levels. So check out the link for details. Squat Camp, May 4th in Queens, New York. Press and Bench Press Camp, July 20th in Indianapolis. Deadlift and Power Clean Camp, April 6th in Queens, New York. The following are all squat and deadlift camps. We keep adding more to these. April 6th in Indianapolis. April 6th in Phoenix. April 6th in Orlando. April 6th in Boise, Idaho. Just added April 13th to Orange County, California at Strength Cone Costa Mesa. April 28th in Baltimore. May 18th in White Plains, New York, and November 2nd in Indianapolis. And now just to reiterate, Starting Strength Miami is taking pre-sales, so if you're interested in that and getting in at a lower rate, make certain to check them out. And St. Louis looks like they're about halfway through their build-out, so they should be open shortly. If you're interested in finding out where other Starting Strength gyms are or are planning to open, head over to startingstrengthgyms.com, scroll to the bottom, and hit the Locations tab to find out more. And as usual, I'd like to say that the NFA should be repealed and we should all be able to buy machine guns at 7-Eleven. Take care. From the Asgard Company Studios in beautiful Wichita Falls, Texas, from the finest mind in the modern fitness industry, the one true voice in the strength and conditioning profession, the most important podcast on the internet. Ladies and gentlemen, starting Strength Radio. Welcome back to Starting Strength Radio. We are here with our dear friend, Eva Tardokins. And uh, Eva and I have been buddies since about 2006. And uh, uh, I, she's just one of my dearest buddies. And I just love her to death. And I'm, I'm uh, so happy to finally be able to talk to her on the podcast here. And you'll, you'll find out why in just a minute. Uh, Eva, I'm so glad you're just in one piece and talking to us and in a good position in your situation. Uh, yeah. You, Eva had a, Eva was a, an Olympic skier. She was in the Olympics in 72. 70? No, no. I was barely six years old at that oh, point. Oh, okay. Um, I'm, I'm 92 older. and 94. I know it had a two uh, in I it. did the... <laughs> Albertville Olympics in France and the Little Hammer Norway Olympics. Okay. And she was a downhill skier. I did get yeah. that part right, correctly. Mostly technical events, slalom and giant slalom. But in France, I did the Super G. Okay. And uh, so Eva was performing as a high-level athlete for a long, long time. And uh, I ran into her back in 06 uh 
through her association with CrossFit, she and I were both associated with CrossFit in its very, very early days. And uh, uh, well, we've got a few things to say about that, but our, I, I'm less concerned with CrossFit than I am the people that I met during CrossFit, and Eva is one of them, and she and I have remained in touch all these years, and uh, she's a very important person to me. And the 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 goddamnedest thing happened to Eva uh, several years ago. Eva was in a, a small plane crash. And I and want you to tell us about that because I don't want to get anything wrong about that. That was a – she had uh, started flying – herself and you know sometimes shit happens sometimes shit happens and the day that i had my crash i was on my two-year sign-off so every two years when you're a pilot you have to get with an instructor and fly for an hour and do a little written test and they sign you off for your next two years so we took out off out of watsonville california and when we got to a good altitude um, which was only like maybe we were at 1,800 feet. He reached around me and he pulled my engine. He goes, you lost your engine. Where are you going to land? And I said, on that runway right there. And it was the Monterey Academy runway, which I had landed on a lot. It was a grass runway. It wasn't an official, you know, wide middle lane or uh, uh, midline runway. And so I started steering the plane and of course I had no power so I was gliding the plane and I did the pattern and the pattern in flying is a square that's around the runway and I was on final and I was going to touch down but it was a religious day at the school so we knew we weren't going to land that I was just going to gas it and fly out. We were at 60 feet in the air and a wind shear they call it, it was a strong wind from straight above us just slammed us in the ground. I, at that time, had done one aerobatic competition, so I knew what I was doing, and so did my instructor, Aaron. He knew what he was doing. But at 60 feet, and if you're in a plane, there's no time. You have no chance. There's no, it was like so sudden. And then um, my um, instructor called the ambulance when we had the crash. I was smashed in the front of the plane. I, um, bit my tongue off. I had crossed eyes when I got out of the hospital, or, well, after the accident. And um, a helicopter came to get us. And they came and they tried to put Aaron, my instructor, in the helicopter. He said he had a broken back and broken ribs. And he said, no, you got to get Eva. So they put me in the helicopter. They brought me to the Salinas Hospital, which is about a 45-minute drive from where we were. And after I could hear again, the doctor said, Eva, if you weren't here, if you were here five to 10 minutes later, you wouldn't be here. And well, they stabilized you just in time, didn't they? Well, the helicopter and the fact that my instructor said, don't take me, take her first, was a good... That saved um, your ass, yes. That saved my ass, and you know... I don't really like to bring this up, but none of us did anything wrong. We went flying. We checked the weather before. So it wasn't like we really tripped on a rope. It just happened, and that happens on our Earth. Nature happens. It's just one of them deals. 
It's yeah. one of them deals. It's and there's been deals. some um, localized uh, wind monitors uh, where uh, where I had my crash, and they said there's wind shear all over the place on this. It's right on the shoreline, so the water's coming up off the water and changing direction. And you know, we have looked at it scientifically a lot, and no one was to blame. And some people blame my instructor, like he was the instructor. It was his fault, his fault. And I said no. And Mitch called the FAA, and they Mitch and is the your FAA boyfriend, said, so. Yes. Right. Yes. And um, and they said to him, who was the pilot in command? And I and Mitch said she was. She was the one piloting the airplane. My airplanes are air, are two seaters. So it's a front and back and set side to side. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's pretty much what happened is that I was in the front seat and I saw all the instruments and I had all the controls. In the back seat, you have all the controls except for you don't see all the gauges really well. And, you know, it wasn't his fault. It was no, just, it's just a freak it, of nature. It's a dangerous place to have a landing strip, basically, because of the wind. No, shift. I landed there many times and people land there fine. The thing, and what people don't understand because they say, you fly, you're dangerous. And I'm like, no, actually flying statistically is 1,000 times safer than driving. Right. So, yeah, and, and, and that's and easily that. understood if you understand that when you're driving, other people can run into you. And when you're flying, yeah. you're kind of pretty much, you know. You're doing the thing. Doing the thing, and it's nobody else but you. Well, at my airport, it's a unicom, so we don't have a tower. We just on, are on a station where we talk to each other. So you have to announce where you are. Like, this is um, Decathlon 66882. We're on final for runway 20, Watsonville. You have to say where you are. Right. And so other people can look for you because that's one of the main things of flying is you have to look where people are so that you don't run into them. Right. But I think it's a, for me, I love flying. It's in my blood. I bought another plane. I'm flying again. I have to deal with the FAA right now because if you have had a brain injury, it's easy for them to say, no, you can't fly ever. But we have a company that I'm working for called Left Seat, and they deal with people who have had crashes and have had diseases where the um, FAA takes their license away. You can't fly. And um, so we just have to deliver it to them well. And I, I will be flying again. I can tell you I can do it. I fly well. I do some aerobatics and I can do it. It's back in my blood. And I remember what I did. Oh, I have no doubt that you will very soon. No doubt. Yeah. So uh, what was the nature of your injury? This is... This is terribly interesting because it was... No. This is a severe situation. Yes. So I um, was crashed into the front of the airplane. Um, my left frontal lobe of my brain was injured. And um, also my ankle and my foot. I can't remember the name of the, the break, but it was all my metatarsals on the left and my tibia and fibula were broken. 
So they had to put screws and stuff and they did a surgery. Whoever the doctors were, who I don't even know who they are. That's why I want to go thank them. They did such a good job on my ankle. I didn't feel it. And um, they did a they did um, brain surgery where they removed the skull in front of the skull injury because they didn't want my brain to swell and shrink and have it go against my skull and mm -hmm. have that be more of a problem. But about a one day, my boyfriend Mitch took me home. The hospital said she's got to get used to being at home. And I was numb on my whole right side. It was kind of not all of a sudden, but I just started getting numb. I couldn't use my walker. I couldn't walk. I couldn't use my anything because my whole right side was numb. And so Mitch called the hospital and the first woman said, oh, she just had surgery. Of course she's numb. But then Mitch talked to my physical therapist and she said, oh my God, you got to get her in here. So they brought me in. They started a surgery to put the bone back, but they shipped the bone from Southern California. When they unwrapped the bone and they went to put it back on my skull, it was contaminated. So they said this How bone is infected. How had that happened? Do you know? They dropped it. Something happened in the transit. Holy shit. <laughs> yeah. I had a lot of hurdles to jump. This wasn't the first one, and I was out. I was in general anesthesia at this time. And so they sewed me back up and they said they had to talk to my cousin, who's my power of attorney and Mitch. Do you want to just sterilize the old bone and put it back? Or do you want us to make a synthetic type bone and put it back? And so they did a synthetic bone. They said, no, we don't want to put infected bone in because sometimes when you sterilize things, it should be disinfected, you but don't you it. don't want to. Yeah. Right. So um they i had to wait two weeks with the numb right side and they put me back into general they had made and constructed a new bone and they put the bone in my head and did the surgery and two days later in the hospital i could move my right side was you know after an accident you're still kind of out of balance but i could walk i could move my body and i was fine i wouldn't say fine but i was you were better the, than having a numb left side. Yes. Right. And then... Um, it was the right side, wasn't it? It left was my low, right side. Left and what lobe, right was side. The brain, right. the brain shifted. So it, it blocked part of my spinal cord, and that's what caused me to be numb. Okay. So, and then... Otherwise, I, I had physical therapy a lot. I couldn't work. I couldn't do anything. And still now, um, at the time, I was, I'm was i a dental hygienist. And I there was an insurance guy that came by and he said, how is your neck? And do you ever get carpal tunnel? Or do you ever feel like you're not able to mobilize after you do dentistry? And I said, no, but I want to protect myself about that. And so I started paying for accident insurance. And um, Mitch told them that I had the plane crash and he said, will you cover her? And they said, we can't tell you how much, but yes, she is covered. So I get a monthly check from the insurance that I bought, which was lifetime insurance. And I just have to be careful like when I work, because if I get like a, and I don't want to go the, ins the accident insurance, but 
if you get paid too much, they look hard at you. Like how much do we pay you? Right. And at this point I feel like I can do dental hygiene on friends and family, two to four patients a day. But it's also that time in my life where I can keep my license, my CPR and all those medical reasons that I do dental hygiene up and still clean my friend's teeth. But I don't think I will be working because I just, the amount of money that I would make seeing four patients once or twice, once a week wouldn't be it's not, worth telling. No. And they're good people. I'm not saying that they're bad. They're just doing the right thing by giving you the right amount of money. And I don't get that much, but it's it's supportive. Well, well, that's good. What? But the amazing thing is uh, the severity of these injuries. I don't. I don't think that your presentation here has has given everybody is is an accurate and an account of what actually happened is i got because i was aware of it from the beginning and and followed it very closely uh the fact that eva is sitting in a chair right now and talking to me over this video link is just fucking amazing i'm telling you it's fucking amazing i did not ever think i would get to do this and uh, because I'm you, you people don't understand how bad this fucking wreck was. This was, this is not bad. something a human body is supposed to survive. Um, what people answer to me is, "You're lucky you're here. You're lucky that you're here." And one of the reasons I recovered is because I, you know, I have science behind my back. But you know what I started doing. I started doing physical therapy, but my boyfriend Mitch brought me into the weight room. And what he had me start doing? Back squat and deadlift. Mm -hmm. That improved me. And what my message to the public is that if you get in a bad accident, it's not the end of the world. You have the ability. The doors have been open for you. Do what you want to do with your life. Don't let this float by and have you die in pain. Well, don't. You've got to work hard to be where I am now. I put a lot, a lot of time and effort, not money. I just made the moves to get better. Well, most people, when confronted with a situation like this, uh, without your background, most people just say, well, I'm fucked. You know, it's been a good run, and I'm just going to lay down here and go to sleep. And that's not you. And, uh, you know, most of the people watching this podcast, it's not them either. And uh, mm -hmm. what what Eva did was what she'd always done. She pushed the edge away from her. And she's done this with her athletics. She's done this with her with her training and her, her um, physical therapy and everything else she's done all her life. Uh, Eva pushes the edge away. And what we'd like for you to take away from this today is that you can do the same thing if you just will. 
you can do the same thing. Don't listen to people who tell you to just sit down and take it easy and be comfortable and be thankful that you're alive and all of this other shit that uh, the human race suffers from. Because if you do, if you take that approach, if you take that approach at any point during your life, uh, you're not going to be half of what you can be because that is what losers do losers sit down and take it easy and just enjoy the fact that nothing's hard because things are supposed to be hard and i tell this to people who have not had an accident go after getting better at yourself don't make other people better work on yourself to be better do the things that you have studied or learned from people who know what they're talking about to improve yourself not anyone else but work hard on it because if you just sit down and just let it happen that's like signing your own death certificate mm -hmm. you just quit and i i know i'm probably at the last third of my life and i don't want to do nothing. I want to do things. I want to be excited about what I do for people, what they do for me, and what I do physically and mentally mm -hmm. to be better and enjoy where we are now. And it's very hard for me to, and I'm not getting down on everyone, but some kids, they just don't steer in the right direction. No. To me, they say, I don't want to work because of this, because of that. I had a, um, I've had clients that say my, my mom pays for everything. And they're like 30 years old. They're like, <laughs> wow, we're in trouble. What a mom. You've destroyed <laughs> your children. <laughs> yes. And I remember, and this is probably a bad subject to say, but I remember when I was younger, you know, I got spankings. If I didn't do the right thing. Oh, I think everybody productive got spanked. <laughs> yeah, but now Don't I look back think? at my parents' past, and I looked at two great things for, of my parents. I thanked them for spanking me. At the time, I was bawling my head off. But, but the fact that they spanked me, I knew what I needed to do. And the other thing is, you know, my mom passed away in four days after being in the hospital. And my dad, he shot himself. And I always used to be angry that my dad shot himself. But now, after being through the situation that I've been through, if you can't do things, if you can't live your life fully, why do you want to be here? And I'm not telling people to kill themselves. No, or shoot, I, I, shoot look, themselves, I understand but. that. You know, there are circumstances. Uh, Eva's dad was an Olympic fencer. Yeah. And uh, he was a very, very high-level athlete. Everything he did all of his life was 105% of what everybody else around him could do. He was a very impressive man. And people that are that way – do not adapt well 
to mediocrity. Right. They just don't adapt well to it, and as and and to them, not being alive anymore is preferable to being mediocre. Now you yeah. do with that what you want to, but that's that's what happened. And you want to do things for other people, but you need to do things to make yourself better for you and the people around you and for your life. Like a boring life, I always say to Mitch, you know, when we go flying, and I said, yeah, this place is kind of sketchy. Um, I think we should land. And, you know, I say to him, I would rather die, and I don't want to, I want to make sure your audience know that I don't want to die in a plane crash, but it would be easier than dying for two years with a hospital giving you medication after medication yeah. and you're just lying there. Not no, I want to hit the ground. Yep. And so I have an aunt that was my father's sister. And when she was in, they're from Poland and she was a dentist and you think, okay, you did something, you know, good. And when she came to the States, um, she couldn't get her dental license, but she became a hygienist like I am. And she got a job in Elko for the F-16 fighters in the Air Force. And I always said to her, that should have been my job. But she now is passing. She is lying on a bed. She can't walk to the kitchen. She cannot um, talk. She doesn't even recognize me when I come there. Oh, God. And that is teaching me a lesson like why you don't want to live that you're just a lump of tissue on a bed no, for and, two years. And, you know, more. a lot of people, and this is what we're really talking about, a lot of people choose that kind of an existence over doing something hard. Yep. That is a, there is a price to pay for that degree of laziness, you know, there's a price to but pay. That's if what you, she wants to do. If, if that's what she wants to do, then maybe told she me, doesn't. Maybe she does not view that as a price she is paying. But damn it! Yeah, I can tell you that um, about a year ago, when she could still talk, um, Mitch and I would go to her house and we'd talk to her caregivers. And she had one day she went to take a bath when she could do that. She turned on the bath and she went to bed. She flooded the whole house. So Mitch did some repairs with that. And um, but she said to both of us in our eyes, I want to live forever. And Mitch oh and I were God. like, and I don't want to be mean about that, but we know that's her wish. And, um, you know, I talked to hospice the other day when I saw her, she looked at a wall and she didn't even speak a language. She talked to herself for 45 minutes. That's the situation that I don't want to be in. You don't want to be in just, I don't want to be here and no, I don't want to no, say that I'm no. suicidal, but There's I don't want to live like, and we pay a lot of money. Luckily, she has enough money, but it's four thousand dollars a week. 
to maintain her in this in this stasis that she's yes. in. It's not alive. It's just stasis. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know. I taught her starting strength, too. I wanted her to deadlift and back squat. I wanted to do some exercise. I wanted her to eat well. And she told me that I was an idiot. I was like, okay. So we, I didn't spend that much time. She wasn't a favorite family member, but right. I'm her only family member left. And going through my plane crash and taking care of her has been, you know, double trouble. Well, it's 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 been an enlightening experience, I'm sure, at several levels. Uh, yeah. From your own standpoint, you did what you would have done anyway, which is push the edge because that's yeah. what you do that's all you know how to do is push the edge mm -hmm. and then from her standpoint you come back in and you look at her and you say this is what happens in the polar opposite situation mm -hmm. where there's no pushing of anything right there is only continuing to breathe and I, I, you know, I. It's hard to understand. You know, it's hard. It's hard to understand. But I guess there are just different uh, levels of participation in. Uh, Look what we do with our life. pets. We, I love pets. I love dogs. And if I had a dog that um, was hurt so bad, or he, it, and I don't even say the word old. I don't believe in that. I say you're maturing because as you gain years, it doesn't mean you're getting crappy at everything. No. You have the potential to be great. And I listened to your podcast with the 100-year-old or 99-year-old woman that deadlifts 100 pounds. I'm like, that's life, that she is walking well and living well. And she deadlifts 100. It's not just because she deadlifts 100, but that has put a big piece of the equation to a positive result. Sure, sure it does. I mean, what is the what's the general the most general thing you could say about a hundred about a ninety nine year old woman? She's not very yeah. strong, but you can't say that about her. No, you can't say that about her. And no. if she kicks ass right up until the minute she falls over dead, yes, that's the way to do it. Me, that's please. The way to do it. But you have to do some work in order to get that scenario. You, you have to be willing to be uncomfortable because of what yep. you have voluntarily done. And that's kind of the whole damn thing right there, isn't it? If you are yes. unwilling to make yourself uncomfortable to accomplish a physical task, then you cannot be adapted to physical tasks. And if you can't right. be adapted to physical tasks... That's kind of an important part of being alive. It's the it's your relationship with your environment is physical. You know, right. and I say this all the time, strength is the most important factor. Your ability yeah. to produce force against an external resistance means nothing less than your ability to 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 interact with your environment. That's what you do with your body as you interact with your environment. Laying in bed all day is not interacting with your environment. Mm -hmm. And if, but if, if that's enough for you, 
Okay, I, that's you know, it's an individual decision. You're going to spend a lot of money on it. You're going to spend a lot of money on it, and you're not going to get a damn thing out of it, except right. a few more breaths, which aren't that yeah. big a deal anyway. Yeah. So I and one thing, well, I got part of my commonality with you just from being with you and um, coaching for you. But I just feel like what I see in my clients when they do, I my strength conditioning is Eva T strength and conditioning. So I have them, the first thing they do when they come to the gym, they do, you know, a back squat or deadlift and a press. You know, we, we leak in some stuff, but then we do some conditioning. And I'm not doing, you know, high intensity workouts. We're just doing some push-ups, some pull-ups, not much, 10 minutes, maybe, not in a rush, just try to get the movement done. And what I see my clients, the change in their attitude, in the way they move, in the way, in the way they communicate with you, when they do movement, it makes them more get-alongable, they just well, get along yeah. and they, they, they're just better, not just physically, but they're socially different people too. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, we are physical creatures, you know, we're not giant globes of mind energy, like on Star Trek. We are, we right. are tied to this body and we live through this body and the body is what we live in and it's how we live. It's what we live through and strength is the way we interact with the things that our body interacts with during the course of our lives. And you, you know, we're not trying to make everybody into a power lifter and anybody that says we are, has got a competing system <laughs> They're yes. trying to sell, but the, the doing things that you don't know you can do physically is an important aspect of your existence that, that is so often neglected and uh you know you you have to you have to be willing to be uncomfortable for a while in order to get better at the thing that made you uncomfortable which you know that's what um one and i don't want to advertise for someone else and i don't even pay this guy any money but um he's from stanford his name is andrew huberman and one of the things he said for people to improve their thought, and if you've had a brain injury, he said, you know, for you, if you're kind of scared about doing something, in a safe way, do it. Do it. He goes, that rebuilds your frontal cortex. It oh, will that's rebuild good your advice brain. Anyway, isn't it? If there's and something you're afraid of people. doing, you're going to be afraid of it until you do it. And see yeah. that, well, I can do this. Yeah. And you may be afraid, you know, when I put a lot of weight on the bar and I go to unwrap the bar from the racks, I'm a little like, okay, I hope I don't crash when I, because right. this is a lot of weight and I hope I can do it. And that's the one thing I want, also want to tell the people listening is after my plane crash, I started doing my starting strength because I knew if I wanted to improve, and I don't ever say I want to be who I was. 
I want to be who I, the way I steer myself. And I had, you know, I was a national master's champion in Olympic weightlifting. I clean and jerked 174 and I snatched like 146. And it, I, and at that time I back squatted, my max back squat was 280. So when I was in the gym a lot, because COVID was going on, so I was in my own gym, I just squatted and deadlifted and pressed. And one day I said, Mitch, I want to go do a max squat. He goes, how much? And I said, at least 300. And we ended up putting 305 on the bar, and I did it. The first time he goes, he said what you say a lot. You weren't deep enough. <laughs> so I said, okay, I'll do it again. And I was afraid. That was a, like the bar was, you know this, because you see guys, you know, doing seven, six and 700 pounds and more. But I went and squatted it again. And I got the depth and he goes, you got it. And I picked it up. I put it back in the rack. And Mitch said, you know, I just want to try to lift this out of the rack. And he went and put his shoulders under the bar and went to stand up. He goes, nope. Not for me. And that was a big, what I think that if people have a, a crash, I was like, you put me in a blender and I was scrambled. Mm -hmm. But I came back and I did a lifetime back squat. About, I think I was out of the hospital for maybe 18 months or yeah, maybe two that's, years. That's, that's had, pretty cool with, with that kind yeah. of a, that kind of a medical history and doing a PR squat, that's, you know, what, see, and this is, uh, this is what I'm trying to get everybody to understand. If you are unwilling to try, then you can't do it. Right. It, not because you can't physically do it, but if you can't also mentally do it, who cares? Mm -hmm. It doesn't get done. Right. It doesn't get done. This is one of the important things about our program is that when you come in today and you are going to do five more pounds for three sets of five on the squat and it's getting heavy and you get the first two sets of five and it's hard and you take the third set out of the rack and you get the first four reps and you got one rep left to go and you say to yourself, you know, I don't know if I can do this or not. You know, that last, that fourth rep felt a little shaky. I don't know if I can do this or not. You've got a decision to make. You can decide to put it up, or you can decide to at least try to do the rep. Yeah. And if you take it down and you come back up, well, then you know now that you can do it. If you take it down and you have to set it on the pins, at least you tried and you know it's not there. But if you don't try it, right, that you don't know anything that you didn't know before. You don't have and any data failures, about yourself. Minimum failures make you learn more sometimes. Of course. If you fail at something, you go, okay, I get it. Okay, there's and the line. Me, yeah. There's the line. Yeah. And I, you know, there was one time where I was starting to go towards 305 and I was racking the bar and I missed the hook on one side of the rack 
and I just let go of the bar like, oh, it's in the rack. And the one side just crashed to the floor, 275 pounds, I think it was. And I was under, I was like, ah! Still under. I stepped away from the bar. Because with my clients, I do separation training. How, what it's like to drop the bar and throw the bar away from you. It's okay to do that. So, but that was gnarly. And, and I have to say, when you say that, I think I want to be on the edge, but having the crash has made me visualize that being so far on the edge, and that's not why I had a plane crash, but just doing the other things. I'm the person when my fifth back squat feels iffy, I've had so much experience, I'm like, rack this thing. Just take a break and understand why you re-racked and you didn't do another one. Because you didn't want to fall on your back and have the ball, bar run, roll over your face and that it's horrible. No, your situation now. is, is a, a, you know, you, if, if your experience tells you to rack it. But what I'm talking about is a guy's been training six months. Yeah. You have to go through a phase of your training where you are willing to push through when you don't know that you can. You're willing to try to push through. And and our point in, in discussing that is that carries over into every other aspect of your existence. And it's right. terribly important to separate yourself with that from the rest of humanity. When I ski race, you know, I, for a while I raced downhill in super G and you'd come into a jump that they have built at 50, 60 miles an hour. Could you stop before the jump and say, I'm just going to rest? No, you're under the clock. You're in a race. You had training before that, but you would get off, go off the jump, fly through the air for 25, 40 feet and land it and keep racing. But there was times where I crashed on those. Everyone did. Sure. But we understood that that's just part of ski racing. And our motivation to ski race had us go off the jumps at 60 miles an hour. Now, I'm not saying that's for a person that's been training for six months, but just having the experience of the movement and feeling like, oh, this sucks. And you can make it through times like that will help you move forward and help you get adapted to the times that you feel like you are going to get smashed into the ground that you can make the lift that you have the strength right. that you've done the training to do it well i had a woman the other day she put 155 on the bar and i had just started with her she started with just a 45 pound bar and i had her deadlift 155 but one day she accidentally put 155 on her back squat bar and she did a three sets of three perfect reps. And she was like, how much was that? And I go, well, I counted it and it was 155. And she goes, oh, that's my deadlift weight, not my squat weight. I was squatting 115. And I said, that shows you that you can back squat 155 perfectly. Reset. <laughs> yeah. So. Well, and she probably had it. about a 225 deadlift, too, she didn't know about. All my clients yeah. have that much, but I am 
and I'm not the same as you are. I do things my own way. And people come and if they feel uncomfortable with it, I'll push them a little bit, but I will either say, well, let's just go light. Let's do movement today. We won't go for heavy duty strength. If you keep working at it and take one step at a time, you will gain strength. And, you know, I had a, another woman that couldn't put her bag in an overhead bin when she got on the plane. She just didn't have the strength. And she was with me for maybe two months and she got on the plane just like basketball into the overhead bin with her bag. Boom. And it was in. And she goes, I'm stronger. And I'm like, <laughs> being stronger is just a part of feeling confident and feeling stable about yourself. <laughs> I don't say happy. I don't say sad. Just stable. Because other stuff happens in life and it's way beyond deadlifting well, and basketball. Being strong produces that kind of a mental situation, and it's not the other way around. If you have learned that you can do things physically that you didn't think you could do, you, you learn at the same time that you could do things in any human way that you didn't think that you can do because you have faced the prospect of failure, and you have yes. shown yourself that it doesn't have to be that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and uh, Eva, you're a perfect example for the human race of the correct approach to just damn near everything. All right. Thanks. I don't want to be cocky, but I do things wrong. We all do things Everybody wrong. Everybody does things wrong. We just try to learn from it and do the right thing. Right. Exactly. And um, that's why I also appreciate you mitch my boyfriend and all my friends because when i did do not so things that were not good they were always like the trampoline that you bounced off of mm -hmm. you're, you're okay you can do it and you know they had their hard times themselves so that's a hard thing is to have a good social you don't have to to, to be strong but having a good social environment and that's you for me. You got me through waves of being strong, not just lifting, of just my personality, of doing different things, having my own strength and conditioning class, and just doing it another way yeah. that will be helpful. So thank well, you. Eva, thank you for being with us today, honey. I sure am. Every me. time I talk to you, I'm so I'm just happy to get to do it. Okay. It well, almost wasn't that way. All right. Right. Okay. Yes. Thank you. We'll, we'll take talk care. again. All right. I I will look forward to it. Take care. And thank you guys for joining us today on Starting Strength Radio.